You're listening to the Reef and Focus podcast, produced by the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority. The marine park is too big for us to manage just by ourselves. We have to bring in our partners, uh, our traditional owners, our tourism operators and, and sort of reef dependent industries. Um, we have to bring in the community because without them, um, you know, they're the people who get out there and use the reef, they value the reef, they tell us stories about the reef all of which help us to to better manage the reef. G'day everyone, welcome to the latest edition of our Reef in Focus podcast, where we tackle all the big issues on the Great Barrier Reef. And joining us today is a man who's tackled all the big animals on the Great Barrier Reef, head of our field management, Dr. Mark Reed, better known as Dr. Croc. Hello, Mark. Hi, how are you going? (laughs) Thanks very much for joining us. We're going to talk all things protecting the marine park today, mate. But first, with all of our guests on this podcast, we'd like to first find out what specifically attracted you to your current role. What made you first fall in love with the Great Barrier Reef? So can you tell us, to begin with, about your previous life as a croc handler? So I might go back a fair way, actually. I was one of those precocious little kids that at the age of five caught my first snake and my first lizard and brought them home to my mum and dad really proudly and said, hey, look what I just found out there. So I had an interest with reptiles really, really early. And so I spent a lot of my time outside chasing critters, just really getting into the environment. I was born in Rockhampton, and so just down the road was Yapoon and Great Keppel Island. So at about four years old, we did our first trip across to Konami or Great Keppel Island. And it was just extraordinary to be out there on the water, um, you know, hanging off at those days. It was the boom nets off the side of the boats that ran out to Keppel. Yeah. And just to be in that environment and experience it. Ultimately, I always had an interest in working with reptiles and, and being you know, into wildlife. I had a little phase there because I really like cooking as well. So I thought, oh, I might become a chef. But then I decided I'd just become a wildlife biologist who likes to eat and cook. Yeah, right. And so um, I you know, went through uni, um, started my career with Queensland Parks and Wildlife Service, got my first job as a crocodile biologist. And so I was employed to spend all my time driving around Queensland with a little boat behind me, counting crocodiles and catching crocodiles. So it was just like the best job in the world. Is it as wild as it sounds? It is as wild as it sounds. I mean, in some ways, yes. Look, at the end of the day, if you're working really remotely with machinery, boats, trailers, traps, and big animals, you don't have a lot of freedom to make mistakes. You've got to be safe. You've always got to be on the ball. So I always used to say to people, the most dangerous part of my job is not working with crocodiles. It's actually working with machinery. It's driving trucks. It's towing trailers. It's working with boats. Um, I've actually got bigger scars on me from guinea pigs than I've got from crocodiles, (laughs) which sounds a bit ludicrous when you tell people that. So, yeah. That's so what right. does that entail, being a crocodile biologist? What specifically are you looking for? You're tracking their movement? Are you looking at what they eat? Or is it a combination of all things? Look, it's all of the above. You know, my job was really to be able to provide the government of the day with information about how the crocodile populations in Queensland were faring. So I was working primarily on estuarine or saltwater crocodiles. So I was answering questions like, you know, do the numbers, are the numbers going up? Are the numbers going down? Where are the most crocs located? Um, If they're near human habitation, are they experiencing or are they exhibiting dangerous behaviour to people? And then part of my job was to then go out there and actually target those animals for removal to remove the risk to people. 
So I, I was also really lucky in the fact that I pioneered the application of satellite transmitters to big saltwater crocodiles, estuarine crocodiles, so we could actually look at their movements. And it was amazing. Like within the first 12 months, we'd essentially rewritten the books about how crocodiles use space through time. And that's phenomenal. That's worldwide now? It is worldwide, but it was fascinating because, A, we were just trying to see how they moved around. But we're all also really interested in this. If you caught a crocodile in one location and moved it to another location and let it go, what would it do? Would it say, thanks, I really like this new piece of real estate, I'm going to stay here? Or would it say, actually, I preferred my my old digs, I'm going to swim home? So we caught three crocodiles and put satellite transmitters on them. One we moved from the west side of Cape York to the east side of Cape York and let it go. And that one just mooched around in the, in the release location for a couple of months and then it just decided, I'm going home. And it swam all the way around the tip of Cape York back to within 100 metres of where we caught it. Incredible. And we did two others and they both did exactly the same thing. They swam home. And that was fascinating because we then used that information to actually change the statewide policy on how we manage crocodiles. So it was really nice applied science to actually get down to making big decisions about how you manage wildlife. So how do you come from tracking crocs around Cape York, even though they share some of the uh, ecosystems that we're looking at, how did you transition to the Reef Authority to start looking at compliance and field management? How did that all come about? So whilst I was working on crocodiles, yes, I had a bigger job, which was to, to manage um, wildlife for all of North Queensland. So I, I managed problematic or potentially dangerous animals like crocodiles and cassowaries. Um, but I was also managing threatened species um, and managing teams of people to work with all of those things. So there was a really close interaction between looking after the habitats of the species, looking after the species themselves, but then also thinking about how do I manage humans to try and reduce the risk to humans and to the species. All of that's just about, it's about management. It's about protected area management. So it was, you know, it was a really nice transition between Queensland Parks and Wildlife Service and the Reef Authority because I came over here with all those skills about working with people, dealing with, you know, tricky issues and then understanding how animals use space through time. So it was sort of, in many ways, it was hand in glove. So from crocodiles to cassowaries to the odd feral guinea pig? Yes. You touched on it a little bit. Is there a a point where perhaps you're in the water? I know a lot of our guests on this podcast have a pivotal moment where they first realised or they first laid eyes on the reef through snorkelling or scuba diving, something like that, where they think, this is where I want to be. I'm going to devote my professional life to protecting the Great Barrier Reef. Do you have a moment like that or is it a, a combination of your years trekking up and down the coast? For me, it's probably more of a combination of, of years of being involved in managing wildlife and, and managing people because, you know, we were we were so fortunate. I mean, ultimately I'm employed to do wonderful things out there on the paddock. I mean, how what a privilege that is. And so to be able to do that in one environment with, you know, threatened species and, and um, things like cassowaries and, and marine turtles, to come across to the Reef Authority and do exactly the same thing with an extraordinary marine park out there that we're, you know, um, we're, we're here to manage, that's just such an extraordinary privilege. And avoiding any confusion around this, mate, I guess when we talk about the reef, we think of these spectacular coral ecosystems that we see um, so regularly but the Great Barrier Reef entails a lot more um, than what we see under the water if you like we're talking about 
um, estuaries, islands, seagrass, meadows. What tools do we have to help protect those and build resilience into the future? Yeah, so a really nice example of that, I suppose, is the fact that it's about at last count, there's about 1,050 different islands in the World Heritage Area. Um, there's been this amazing, long-running, enduring relationship between the Commonwealth Government and the State Government to deliver in-field services in the World Heritage Area called the Reef Joint Field Management Program, which is a little bit of a mouthful, so we might just call it field management. Yeah. So it's a long-running, enduring relationship that delivers the infield services to look after a whole range of things. So it looks after the marine environment, but it also looks after about 470 islands of those 1,050. So think about island national parks with campgrounds and walking ground, uh, walking paths on them. So they're looking they're looking after that. Um, think about our public moorings that people go and hook up to. So the field management program looks after them. But also things like, um, you know, if our, if our islands have some form of problem like a, an outbreak of a weed or a, a particular um, insect impacting our trees, the field management program actually goes out there and engages in, you know, trying to combat those threats to enhance the re- resilience of the islands. Um, and it's a really long-standing, you know, relationship between the state and the Commonwealth. And if we sort of, I suppose, just unpack that partnership a bit more... We've got to think about the fact that because the marine park's so big, we can't cover all of it by ourselves. So we've got other partners that come and help us deliver things like compliance, for example. We've got the, you know, the Queensland Police Service, uh, the Queensland Boating and Fisheries Patrol, um, you know, the Australian Maritime Safety Authority. So there's this whole suite of different organisations that help us collectively manage the reef. Um, and that at times we have to do something a little bit more novel to help protect the reef and enhance its resilience. So a couple of things we've talked about it have been things like the crown of thorns starfish. So you know, they're actually a natural species, but they can actually get into really high or what they sometimes call sort of plague numbers on our reefs. They eat coral and they can eat a lot of coral. So for us, one of the management tools that we can actually apply or a management lever that we can pull to make a difference is we've actually got a really good crown of thorns uh, starfish control program, our COTS control program. And that means that we can actually identify reefs that are really important for us, whether that be tourism reefs or, or reefs that are sort of ecologically more important, and we can actually direct resources through the COTS control program to go there and actually bring those crown of thorns starfish numbers down. What we've found through our monitoring is that as soon as we start bringing those numbers down below a threshold, the coral actually starts to bounce back. So it's that resilience in practice, which is really amazing. And it's just about finding that balance, like everything. It's not about wiping them out completely. They're an integral part of the reef ecosystem. It's about finding that balance so everyone lives in harmony, if you like. Yeah, and it's about... What are the things over which we have genuine control as well? Like we've got to be, in so many ways, we've got to be really targeted about how we manage the reef. Um, And we're really lucky because we're really well supported by government, whether that be the state government or the Commonwealth government. They support us really well to look after the reef. And so we've got to make sure that we spend that money in the best possible way to get the best outcomes for the reef. And our marine park is generally considered one of the best managed in the world. And you touched on it there specifically why. It's because it's a genuine partnership and everyone has their role to play. 
Yeah, and that's really important to, to, to bring home. I think it's about the fact that because it's so big, we can't do it alone. So making sure we've got well-established, well-functioning, respectful partnerships, whether that be with our traditional owners, whether that be with all our different government agencies, whether it be with our tourism operators, um, our researchers, um, and you know, most importantly, the community and the visitors that actually go out there and use and appreciate the reef. If all of those things are being considered and we're doing that well, ultimately it means that the Great Barrier Reef is being looked after for today's generation and for future generations. So from an overarching point of view, mate, as the head of field management within the Reef Authority, talking broadly, how do we protect the Great Barrier Reef? For me, it's, it's thinking about the fact that we're talking about an area that's bigger than the size of Italy. Or to put it another way, three quarters of the countries in the world fit within the boundaries of the Great Barrier Marine Park. It's that big. So essentially, we need to have a toolkit to manage the whole marine park and all of the things that happen within it. So we've got to have tools that start out operating or, or managing the marine park at the big level, like our Act, for example, Great Barrier Marine Park Act 1975 and its regulations. It's a really pivotal, broad-scale tool. And then, you know, we have other tools that we can apply at that sort of same level. And then the neat thing is, is that we've got other tools that you can start applying at smaller and smaller scales to tackle the issues that are really important. So whether that's a plan of management, you know, whether that's a permission for a tourism operator to go and do a particular thing, um, you know, whether that might be, um, you know, controlling someone's access to an island, for example. So we're really fortunate that we've got this full toolkit and we can essentially choose the tools that we need to use for the issue that we need to manage. And one of the most successful or I guess the most tangible that we've looked at so far is marine park zones and marine park zoning. And I've heard you describe it as uh, uh, an investment portfolio. You're not putting all of your eggs in one basket. Can you give us a rundown? What does marine park zoning entail and why is it so successful to protecting the Great Barrier Reef? Yeah, so maybe a little bit of history there just to really sort of contextualise that. So we actually started the first marine park zone in 1981 down in the Capricornia area. And so, you know, literally it was just looking after or the zone was just around the Capricorn bunkers. And then progressively over time, the, the Reef Authority increased the zones until the sort of late 90s where we started to realise that the zones we had in place were really focused on reefs and they were really focused on sort of mid-shelf and outer reefs. So all of those other habitats were largely unprotected. And so they started this program called the Representative Areas Program where they went through and had a look at all the different types of habitats in the marine park and said, OK, let's look at protecting each of those you know, up to a certain point. And essentially that's the sort of diversified investment portfolio. It's, it's making sure we've got zones that, that start at the top of the marine park and go to the bottom of the marine park, but also go from east or, you know, west to east. Because if something happens in one zone, it's really nice to have all those other zones as a fallback option. Like what? Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? I know uh, when we look at uh, blue zones and green zones, which we've touched on in previous podcasts, but can you break that down a little bit uh, and explain exactly what you mean there? Yeah, so in many ways, sort of think about it almost like a like a town planning exercise. It's about how do we how do we identify those areas that might be disproportionately more important 
to look after. So, you know, whether that might be an island that supports really high numbers of seabirds and turtles, for example, we might choose to zone that in a way to restrict access. So it's really about protecting the biodiversity. It's also about identifying those reefs that um, are genuinely more important than some of the others. And maybe we might make them a marine national park. So you can't go in there and extract resources, fishing or whatever it might be, unless you've actually got a permit to do so. Um, and so, you know, we've got this, this suite of zones that first and foremost protects biodiversity. But then there's all these cascading benefits of zoning, which is, you know, it protects biodiversity, but one of the benefits is it also protects fish. And, you know, within the zones we've found, within the marine national park zones, or what we call green zones, the research has shown that those areas um, have got, you know, numbers of fish like coral trout that are not only more numerous than the other zones, but they're also bigger, so they produce more babies. And then we've also had this other amazing research that shows that the babies produced in the green zones actually come out of those zones into areas that are open to fishing, what we call a spillover effect. So there's amazing benefits from zoning. And we're starting to see or reap the benefits of 20 years of marine park zoning at the moment. For example, uh, we found that crown of thorns are less prevalent in the green zones and, as you said, more fish or or popular fish stocks are being found in the blue zones where fishing is allowed. Can you break that down for us as well? Yeah, so, you know, first and foremost, the zones were put into place to protect biodiversity. So it's about taking that sort of ecosystem level approach. It's not necessarily about drilling down to looking after just one species, for example. And so what we've found for those marine national park zones is because of the fact that they are, um, they're close to fishing, We've seen benefits like they're more resilient to um, bleaching events. They recover quickly if there's some form of disturbance, say, for example, like a cyclone goes through. But we've also found that the numbers of crown of thorn starfish in the green zones is less than zones that are open to fishing. So they really confer a huge range of benefits to the marine park, but also the biodiversity that it supports. From a personal point of view, I mean, we all love the reef, but yourself being a mad fisherman, it must be very pleasing to see that these things that we've put into effect, some of them 10, 20 years ago, uh, are having the desired effect. It is It is really amazing like to go out on the reef. Um, as I say, as, as you've said, I'm a pretty you know, mad keen fisherman. So to be able to go out there and catch some extraordinary fish in the areas that are open to fishing um, really demonstrates the benefits of, of zoning. But it's also about, for me, it's also about talking to other people that have had a long-term association with a marine park. And, and some of those people that I chat to, they're also staunch advocates of the benefits of zoning. You know, I've talked to other fishers who say, you know, the fishing here is better than it's ever been. And so it's really nice to hear people talk about the benefits, about how that applies to the values that are most important to them, because ultimately they also become our ambassadors for the value of zoning. And that must be very pleasing, particularly from your point of view that, you know, compliance sometimes gets a bad rap that we're out there trying to catch people or, or watch people or something like that. And it's simply not the case. You know, everyone that uses the reef does so for a reason. We all, uh, whether we're fishing, swimming, snorkeling, diving, etc., it's not about, um, I guess, catching people in the wrong. It's simply about education and passing that message on through word of mouth. 
Yeah, I mean, one of, it, one of the tools that we've got in our toolkit, as you mentioned, is compliance. And, you know, we've got a really well-designed, well-delivered, risk-focused compliance program in the Marine Park. And first and foremost, compliance is actually about contacting and, and making connections to the users of the Marine Park. It's about, you know, being able to come alongside somebody who's, who's out there in the Marine Park and saying hello, introducing yourself, starting a conversation, because that then gives us the opportunity to say, hey, are you aware about marine park zoning? Um, do you have different tools that you can access zoning from? Like, you know, do you have something on your chart plotter? Do you have a, a hard copy map, the old style? Or, you know, do you have the Eye on the Reef app downloaded on your phone? That then allows us to have another conversation about, you know, rules and regulations. Um, do you know how to use your chart plotter right? And then we can actually start that education process. So it's about making that physical connection with the users of the marine park. Part of that is we actually want them to go away and come away from those interactions feeling positive. You know, I've just talked to somebody from the compliance program and they were professional, they were courteous, they were respectful. That's the impression we want to leave people with. And all of these factors, mate, all contribute to building reef resilience, which I guess is our overarching aim as the reef authority to make sure the reef can not only um, withstand disturbances or or impacts, but bounce back to be the reef that we all know and love. And and part of that for me is just thinking about that we've been charged with looking after this resource for not only this generation, but for generations to come. So having that future focus, that being able to leave that enduring legacy is really valuable. So the whole element around resilience is really critical for us to understand. Like if we if we manage the marine park well, if we've got zoning in place, um, we've got zones with high integrity, you know, we've got compliance in place to make sure that people aren't out there abusing the zones, that all contributes to enhancing the resilience of the marine park, which means that it is, it's more resilient to disturbances, it'll bounce back quicker, and it's less likely to be impacted by things like crownathorn starfish. We've discussed looking at um, or protecting the reef for future generations. If we look back to say um, how our traditional owners have um, you know, relied on the reef for tens of thousands of years. We're also building on how they've managed and looked after sea country for the last 60,000 years, all up and down the Great Barrier Reef. Absolutely. In many ways, it's about the sort of complementary nature between, you know, understanding and, and getting an insight into their traditional ecological knowledge, like how they've been doing it for many, many centuries, and bringing in a little bit of our management as well. And there's some great examples of where we see that happening. Like we've got a project on a, an amazing place called Rain Island, where we work really closely with the traditional owners. And you get that great intersection as you're walking the beach, talking about turtles or seabirds, and, and all of a sudden they're, they're bringing in their stories about you know what that means to them, how that animal, you know, does particular things based on on their beliefs and culture and it's so much richer to bring both sides of the spectrum into the story and that must be very pleasing from a personal point of view after 30 odd years plus working to protect uh, our natural environment you must have seen some great developments from when you started to to what we're doing now yeah i certainly have and and you know, if we think about our traditional owners, one of the things that has really changed my life is actually being on country with traditional owners. So rather, you know, you can you can read about it as much as you like, you can have as many PowerPoint presentations as you like. Yep. Nothing is as good as actually standing on country with a traditional owner and hear them talk about why that why the country is so important. 
it really it really resonates, but it also it just gives you these extraordinary goosebumps moments, you know, where you you're really getting to have a better understanding about why country is so fundamentally important to them. So tying all of this together, we've touched on uh, working with traditional owners, the toolkits that we use, why um, they're so important and not putting all our eggs in one basket to protect the reef now and into the future, building resilience, tying that all together, why is the Great Barrier Reef the best managed reef ecosystem in the world? For, for me, it's because we've, got, we've actually got the full suite of measures in place to look after this extraordinary World Heritage property. You know, we've got, we've got good rules of the road. We've got good act, you know, good act with good you know, legislation. We've got a whole suite of programs to help us understand the marine park. You know, for example, we've got some of the, the best marine monitoring in the world you know, AIMS, the Australian Institute of Marine Science, have had their long-term monitoring program in place since 1984, which means that you know, when we turn zoning on, we could actually then measure the benefits of zoning because of that long-term monitoring program. We've got you know, people out there who use the marine park who are truly passionate about what they do and why they do it. Um, you know, some of our tourism exam, our tourism operators are great examples. You know, things like our Master Reef Guides program where we've got people who are dedicated to the reef but also dedicated to tell proper stories about the reef and inform their guests and their, their visitors about what's going on. Um, and all of that just builds this really comprehensive picture about how we manage the marine park um, for not just for now, but for future generations yeah, to come. Yeah, so it really is a partnership and everyone has a role to play. Everyone has a role to play. In many ways, you know, I've often talked to people about the fact that the marine park is too big for us to manage just by ourselves. We have to bring in our partners, uh, our traditional owners, our tourism operators and, and sort of reef-dependent industries. Um, we have to bring in the community because without them, um, you know, they're the people who get out there and use the reef, they value the reef, they tell us stories about the reef, all of which help us to, to better manage the reef. A pleasure talking to you as always, mate. Before we go, can you tell us what happened with the guinea pig? So when I was a little kid, we used to breed guinea pigs and uh, I didn't realise as a little kid just how territorial the adult males were. And so one day we had these two adult males that were having a bit of a scrap and I thought I'd just step in there and separate them. Uh, unbeknownst to me, they've also got really quite sharp teeth and so I came off second best to a particularly angry male guinea pig. But Dr Pig doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? It does not, no. Thanks very much for joining us, mate. Thanks, Lincoln. Please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform, leave us a rating or review, and visit our website, reefauthority.gov.au, for more Great Barrier Reef content.